Yo, partnership alert, partnership alert, partnership alert. Living Corporate has a partnership with LinkedIn Learning, an American massive open online course provider that provides video courses taught by industry experts across a wide array of subjects. Now, the partnership is because Living Corporate has courses on LinkedIn Learning focused on diversity, equity, inclusion for leaders, career professionals, and anyone really looking to upskill themselves and be better allies. So make sure you check out our courses on LinkedIn Learning by clicking the link in the show notes. And let's just say you don't want to do that. You go to LinkedIn Learning on LinkedIn, search Living Corporate. We'll be right there. All right. Peace. Hey everybody, this is See It To Be It, the Wednesday podcast from Living Corporate. Living Corporate is a digital media network that centers and amplifies black and brown people at work. My name is Amy C. Wanninger and I'm the host of See It To Be It. When I was growing up in rural Southern Indiana, I didn't know people who went to college or who worked in professional roles. I didn't know what those jobs looked like or how to break into them. In a lot of cases, I didn't even know those jobs existed. But this show isn't about me, it's about my guests. Every week, I bring you career stories from everyday role models in jobs you may not know exist. More importantly, the folks I interview share their perspectives as black and brown professionals in jobs and environments where they may be the only. My guest today is Bethany Wilkinson. She's the author of a new book called The Diversity Gap and host of the Diversity Gap podcast. I think you're really going to enjoy this conversation. But before we get to the interview, we're going to tap in with Tristan for some career advice. What's going on, Living Corporate? It's Tristan of Layfield Resume Consulting, and I'm back to bring you another career tip. The COVID-19 coronavirus has flipped the way we work on its head. Many places are shutting down, and the majority of those that aren't closing are moving to a work-from-home model. Transitioning to working from home can prove to be a much more difficult task than you may think, so I want to provide a few tips to help you be as productive as possible during this time. Number one, create a morning routine. Since you're going to be living and working in the same place for some time, setting a morning routine can help you get into the mindset to work. Also, still get dressed. As much as I'd love to be lounging around in sweatpants, I found that when I first began working from home, I would have a much harder time staying focused if I was in my chill attire. After some time, you may be able to get a little lax on that. Number two, set a schedule. During this time, structure is going to be your best friend. Set a designated work times and be sure to discuss these times with everyone in your household so you're on the same page and you can try to get work done uninterrupted. Sometimes it's really hard to break yourself away from work when you aren't in the office setting, so be sure to schedule breaks throughout the day. And this includes lunch. Take the time to eat, go for a walk, do an activity to decompress, whatever you want to do, just don't skip it. Number three, set up a designated space to work. Like I said in number one, you'll be living and working in the same space. It's best to try to separate social and rest areas from workspaces to get you mentally prepared to work and not tempted to nap. Set up your space in a way to mimic your standard workflow when you're in the office to help boost your productivity. Number four, avoid TV. No, seriously, I know it's tempting, but you'll more than likely get sucked in and productivity will be low. Save it for breaks and really after you're done for the day. 
Number five, mute your phone on conference and video calls when you're not speaking. No one wants to hear background noise, you randomly burping, or screaming at your kid, get down from there. This makes sure you're not a disruption on the call and that you don't embarrass yourself. Number six, use headphones when video conferencing. It's usually easier for people to hear you, for you to hear them, and it stops feedback when you unmute your mic to speak. Number seven, get coffee and snacks. A lot of people who work in offices are used to coffee and snacks being readily available, like that cake in the break room. So when you're doing your shopping, be sure to include these on your list to keep you motivated throughout the day. Number eight, speak up more than you normally would in meetings. Since you're not physically present, you'll want to make your presence known by being a bit more vocal than you normally would. Talk a bit more on conference calls. Check in a bit more via Slack or email. Let your leadership know you're showing up during this time and getting the work done. But don't confuse that with continually checking in or being overbearing on calls. There's a balance. Just try to find yours. Number nine, when you sign off, actually sign off. It's really easy to get sucked into working long hours when you work from home, especially since we're all social distancing and there's not much going on. During this time, it's essential that you create space for yourself to decompress, relax, and turn off work-related notifications like Slack, email, and other work-related apps. I hope these tips help you create a sense of normalcy during this time to help you get a bit more focused and productive while working from home. This tip was brought to you by Tristan of Layfield Resume Consulting. You can check us out on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Layfield Resume, or connect with me, Tristan Layfield, on LinkedIn. Living Corporate is brought to you by the Liberated Love Notes Podcast, part of the Living Corporate Network. The Liberated Love Notes Podcast is a starting point for integrating self and community affirmations into your daily practices. The Liberated Love Notes Podcast centers the experience of black folks existing in white systems and speaks to overcoming imposter syndrome, disrupting injected and internalized forms of oppression, embodying an abundance mindset, and building a healthy, racial identity check out liberated love notes podcast wherever you listen to podcasts hosted by Brittany Janae Harris welcome back to see it to be it my guest today is Bethany Wilkinson Bethany is a writer researcher and social entrepreneur who has dedicated more than a decade to exploring the intersections of community racial justice and social change She's the host of the Diversity Gap podcast, and she has a new book coming out in October, The Diversity Gap, Where Good Intentions Meet True Cultural Change. In her book, she provides a leadership framework for shifting organizational cultures from one that has good intentions for racial diversity to one that bravely participates in creating cultures of the future. Bethany, I am so excited to have you on the show. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you. I'm happy to be. In the pre-talk, we were talking about what is what do we want the format of the show to be today? Because you're a little bit different in that a lot of times when I interview people, it's tell me all about your career. And so even though Bethany is like on this world tour to promote her book, we are really going to stick to the format of the show and talk about her career because that's an important part. It's an important driver of why the book was necessary. Is that correct? Absolutely. 100%. Yes. Our stories... And the work that we do, they're all intertwined. And so I'm excited to dive in. Wonderful. So 
Let's start with what did you set out to do in your career at the very beginning? And how did that evolve to where you are now? Great question. So I am and have always been a very curious person, very curious, very creative, and very hardworking. And those three things together led me to try everything. So when I was in college, I majored in education as well as in community building and social change, because I was thinking, you know what, I want to change the world. I've got big questions. I want to make a difference. And being trained to understand education, it was more like an educational studies program. So I wasn't trained in how to lead a classroom or teach students. I was trained in understanding the history of education. So I thought that would be helpful. And then with community building and social change, I learned about asset-based community development. So how do we come alongside communities and perhaps under-resourced people and help them be the heroes of their own stories and solve their own problems and alleviate poverty in their context on their terms. And so education community development, that's what I was interested in. And I brought a lot of creativity and curiosity to that. Now, that being said, I don't know that I had a clear idea of what that would mean because I was just just taking the next step in front of me. When you're doing community-based work, you meet lots of people, they have opportunities, you try this, you try that. And I just kept following that line of curiosity and creativity. So I was an intern for a few nonprofits because they were doing the work that I wanted to do in the communities that I was a part of. And then I started a farming company with a friend. It was an economic development enterprise. And so we built this farm on a big parking lot in South Atlanta. And then I, I tried that for a little bit. And then I got into organic gardening. And then I got into a more traditional nonprofit. So I was just following the rabbit trail and I'm very surprised in many ways that I've ended up here doing the work that I'm doing today with the diversity gap. I love this circuitous path that you've taken of just putting one foot in front of the other and not really looking at the horizon so much, just following your feet. Tell me a little bit about the work that you're doing now with the diversity gap. Yes, the diversity gap is really, it started out as a research and passion project. I was working in a nonprofit. I'd worked in a few nonprofits at this point. I was often the only black person and often super often the only black woman in those environments. And I had all of these experiences as other black women might understand um, and other women of color even. And so I just wanted to understand this gap between people's good intentions for diversity and the impact and the impact of those intentions. So it started out primarily as research. I started a podcast, I interviewed lots of people, and over the years it's turned into a little bit more of a content platform. So I decided to take all of the research that I'd aggregated and put it in the format of a book and then I also teach the contents of that book and and just core learnings from my research and a workshop called the Diversity Gap Workshop. So it's mostly content creation and then coming alongside organizations that are on their change journeys and really trying to meet them with stories and frameworks to help them move along as they seek to increase diversity, especially racial diversity and racial equity in their organizational context. What kind of organizations are you targeting with this message? Is there a particular vertical that you're in? Uh, are you focused on not-for-profits or commercial enterprises? What's your sweet spot? My sweet spot's with nonprofits and other okay. value-driven organizations. So social enterprises um, and nonprofits are are definitely my lane. I think that's so important because not-for-profit work, many people see it from the outside as being altruistic in a lot of ways. 
nonprofits are real gatekeepers in our society about who gets access to resources, how those, how those resources get access, who's let in, right? They, nonprofits live on that boundary of who's in and who's out and really control a lot of flow mm-hmm. of resources, materials, opportunity. And I'm wondering if you can talk just a little bit about that. Yes, I think that's definitely true. And I haven't thought of it in those terms necessarily, though I will after this conversation, because I think you bring up a really great point. I would say the reason I have focused on nonprofits is partially because that's been my experience. I really like to, I want my work to come from a place of lived experience for myself. So that's part of it. The other part of it is that for many organizations, they will treat people poorly for the sake of accomplishing some other goal outside of themselves. And I really want to inspire and encourage organizational leaders to be reflective, not only about the good impact they are hoping to do in the world, but the impact of their organizations on the literal people in their offices and on their teams, because I just think there's room for greater alignment there, that people would experience greater, not only inclusion, but respect and dignity and support in their workplaces as they lend their talents to these nonprofit organizations and the good that they hope to do in the world. The, um, this notion of what we represent on the outside, right? What we, what our mission is versus how we live internally. We are seeing crop up in a lot of areas, not just in not-for-profits, but in business settings, in schools. And I think in a lot of cases, to your point about intentions, right? People don't set, let me back up. A lot of people don't set out to be performative, right? Some people absolutely do. What do you think, why do you think it's so hard for people to align their internal culture with their external mission Mm. or their stated external mission? So many reasons. The first thing that came to mind was that I think people are moving too quickly. I think they actually are moving too fast to stop and think and to bring to bear the level of reflection that's needed. I think that there are few incentives to slow down and to do that work. If you are raising lots of money and you're building this great network and people are celebrating you, the idea that you would have to step back and and slow down and maybe change some things might be threatening to maybe to your ego, but definitely to the status quo. I think that's a reason there's the misalignment. I also think that many organizations don't have effective feedback loops through which to learn about the impact of their culture on their employees. And I think that when there are power imbalances involved, you have maybe a majority white C-suite or board, and then most of the BIPOC are in entry-level positions. If that's the case, it's really hard to get the feedback that you need or to believe the feedback or to find it credible if it's people who are new to your team, if they're younger on the age spectrum, there are all sorts of things in people's minds that keep them from believing, hey, maybe there's something wrong in our culture here. And then because of the power dynamics, it's hard for young BIPOC to be honest about their experience because it's hard to tell the truth when someone's signing your paycheck at the end of the week. And so I think there are lots of factors that create that misalignment. Thankfully, I would say over the last few years, 
because there has been more amplification around accountability and transparency, I think that some of those barriers are being eroded, if that's the right word. But for many organizations, they still have to stop and listen. You still have to have a posture of willingness and openness to listening to tough feedback if you're going to start to change things. And for many folks, I think it's just too vulnerable or it costs too much to be that honest. That phrase, it's hard to be honest with somebody signing your paycheck. That is a whole sermon in and of itself, because every single one of us, I think would say, yes, we're very principled, right? But there are very few of us who, when it's our livelihood, when it's our financial future, when it's our personal safety, will actually say what needs to be said. And the further that distance between where I am and the person that I'm talking to in terms of power, the harder those conversations are to have. I was talking with a gentleman this morning. It was really funny. He works with CIOs and CTOs. So technology executives, um, primarily in, in tech companies or in companies that are very tech reliant. And he said, one of his clients was talking about, she really wants to get back in the office. She's a, a CEO. She really wants to get back in the office because she really misses the conversations that she had in the office when she could stop by somebody's desk and chat with them about how's your family and is your dog okay and whatever. And I stopped him in that moment. He said, yeah, we're having a big conversation about this next week. And I see, yeah, that's fascinating. Another aspect of that is that's a very white perspective to have about being back in the office. And if you're going to have that conversation, can you please make note that 97% of black people don't want to be in the office because the CEO walking up to their desk requires so much in terms of code switching and fear and calculation around what to say and how to say it and how to be and how to show up in that moment that can ruin their whole week or their whole career if they misjudge. Mm -hmm. And and he's a great guy, but he doesn't always see all of the different perspectives on this. And he said, that's fascinating. And I hadn't thought of that. And yes, I will bring that up. And I think some of these things that we can take for granted, especially as leaders in organizations, the ability to walk up and interrupt somebody's work is a privilege, mm. right? Okay. The ability to walk up and interrupt somebody's work and expect them to tell us what we want to hear is a ridiculous amount of privilege. And leaders want to believe like I'm connecting with my people when I do this, but sometimes that just doing that is violence, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's helpful to hear you describe that. I haven't worked in an office in a long time. And when I think back to my last season of working in an office, I don't think I had the perspective that you just gave. I just knew that I was feeling overwhelmed and exhausted by these interactions. And so hearing you lay that out, I'm like, oh, that's why that makes a lot of sense. And I also think you saying that's a very uh, white thing to do. I would also, I'm thinking about just how different cultures approach power distance in general. I know for me and the black culture that I was raised in, like power distance is real. Yes, no, yes, sir, no, sir. Yes, ma'am, no, ma'am. Mr. Mrs. It's always very clear, like there is distance and that distance is to be respected. And I do think in white culture, sometimes that distance is flattened in some ways, but not in other ways when it comes to authority or decision-making or financial resources. It's very interesting. You have me thinking all sorts of things now. 
That's awesome. The this notion of of power difference, and I think it's interesting you say like it can collapse in white environments. That collapse is very conditional, and it's very conditional upon playing by the rules of the collapse. Mm-hmm. And if you get comfortable and violate those rules, the consequences are you know the consequences will be severe. To quote that creepy lady in Harry Potter, and so. <laughs> It's, it's no wonder to me that it's exhausting for people. It's, it's exhausting for me and I'm white to try to figure out like, where is that line? And, and your friends aren't always your friends. And how do you navigate that? How do you see this coming up in not-for-profits and the way people interact, not just within the organization, but with the communities that they serve? Yes. Great question. So I actually wrote about this in my book. And one of the ways I do see it come up in nonprofit organizations, both internal and external to them is the use of the language of family. And so there's can be this idea that, oh, we're a team, we're all a family, we're all in this together. And similar to what you're describing, that is very conditional. And the moment any one of those boundaries or ideas spoken or unspoken are threatened or just not, people don't comply, then suddenly that familial thing that familiar quote unquote family bond disintegrates and you've got lawyers involved and all of the rules of the institution collapse on you really quickly. So that's one way I see that, that dynamic play out in the organization. And then sometimes with the community at large too, we're thinking, Hey, we're all here to do a good thing. Let's build this multi-stakeholder initiative, but people's ideas about who should be in charge and about who gets to do what with the money and who's trustworthy and who's not trustworthy. All of those same ideas emerge when we try to build partner in a community, in a city, whatever it might be. And so those same habits, those patterns of mind, what I'm really trying to get at with the diversity gap, especially when we talk about organizational culture and some of these relational dynamics is like, hey, if you aren't doing the work as a leader to pay attention to how these things show up in your body and your leadership and the way that you were perhaps trained to lead, if you're not doing the work, then you're probably causing harm, not only internally, but in terms of your impact. And if you don't have those feedback loops, those trusted circles to hear what's really going on, you can spend your entire career thinking you're, you know, changing the world without ever addressing all of the harm and all of the bodies that are in the wake of that leadership. We have to be thoughtful. We have to be reflective and we have to listen to that hard feedback. I want to go back to, you mentioned boards. And I think I can tell by your face that you know where I'm going with this. Boards are so problematic, right? Because boards are, especially in nonprofits, they are typically volunteer positions held by people who have power in other facets of the community, who also are unencumbered by responsibilities that would prevent them from serving on the boards, such as day-to-day childcare responsibilities, poverty, these kinds of things, right? What can nonprofits do or how can nonprofits approach their board selection to be more equitable? And I asked this specifically, I'm going to give you a little backstory here on where this is coming from. I had a not-for-profit reach out to me. They said, wow, we're really having a hard time coming up with people, finding a diverse slate of directors for our board. And so I asked them to tell me a little bit more about that. What are you doing? And so they said, well, it's basically the problem is like our whole board's white, but we serve a black community. And I said, okay. And I said, why would somebody want to be on your board? 
and they're like to help further our mission. I'm like, what are you asking of people to be that are on your board? Well, they have to do this and this. I said, and so let's say I'm in this community that you're seeking, you're telling me this is your target population of people that you serve, right? It was like young inner city, predominantly black youth who needed a creative outlet without giving too much away about what organization it was. And I said, so let's say you're the parent of one of those kids. What would you get out of being on that board? And they could not answer. They had no, and they're like, yeah, we need to go do some work and come back. So I'm curious what your advice is to someone who's in that situation where they're like, we want this representation, but we just really don't know what we're offering. Yeah, I think your question is great. What would they get out of being on this board? My thought was, it came to mind, there's a woman who leads a nonprofit and company. I think it's two things. And she always says, don't solve a problem about them without them or something along those lines. Just the importance of having people who are experiencing whatever the issue is have not only a seat at the table, but go to their tables and see what solutions they already are cultivating and see how you see if and how you can add value in this context. So I'm a big fan of having representation from the community that you seek to serve. But in doing that, to your point, you have to really reimagine the whole thing. What are they getting out of it? What time of day is this happening? How long is the commitment? I think you have to get creative and be willing to release your old expectations of what a board does and how it works in order to in order to make space for this new way of being and to, and to prioritize that representation over the, perhaps the comfort, the prestige of having this board of people with a lot of privilege. And I know that gets messy because we're talking about resources for the sustainability of that nonprofit. Oftentimes board members are expected to contribute substantially to the mission of the organization, which in and of itself is likely problematic, depending on the nonprofit you're talking about. I also think that for some organizations, if they get into the weeds of really increasing representation from the communities that they serve, they might find that their nonprofit doesn't really need to exist, which I think is another painful point of acknowledgement for leaders who have invested their careers in sustaining these nonprofit enterprises. Yeah, those are some of my thoughts. That's profound, this notion that maybe we shouldn't exist, or maybe we shouldn't exist in this configuration, or maybe we should rethink this from the ground up and maybe not be in charge of it anymore, I think is terrifying for people who are used to be in charge of things. And also probably not just terrifying from a, a standpoint of not wanting to cede power, but also a little terrifying from a, a your their internal perceived value as people. Who am I if I'm not better than someone else? Who am I if I'm not leading someone else? And I think that can be really complicated for people who have grown up in a society where that's what's valued. Yeah. Increasing that power distance makes you more valuable. Mm-hmm. And so how do we collapse that without seeding some of our ego? And I think the answer is you probably can't. Right. <laughs> right. Right. You probably have to go to therapy and be folded into a community that can help you reimagine what it means for you to be you, which is difficult work. But I also think of 
myself and other Black women who tends to be, that's a lot of my community, like that's work that we have as we're navigating what it means for us to show up in our work and in these workplaces and dealing with harm and trauma and microaggressions and all of these things, we're having to go to those places, to our communities, to therapy, to we have to heal too. And so I, I, I know that language kind of shifts from organizational life, but I'm just thinking we have to heal from some of these things if we're ever going to experience greater freedom, greater liberation, more joy in our cross-racial, cross-cultural relationships. I think it's possible, but those who have been groomed to be in positions of quote-unquote power and for whom that's all they know, yes, it's a journey. It's a journey to really upend some of that. But I do think, I, in my heart, I believe that there is freedom and joy to be found there if people will go on that journey. Bethany, I want to thank you for your time today. This has been absolutely just fantastic conversation. I hope you feel that way too. I do. I do. This has been fun. Real quick. Let's talk about your book. When does it come out? It comes out on October 12th. So we are just a couple of weeks away. And tell me the full title again. It's called the diversity gap where good intentions meet true cultural change. And I hope everybody will rush right out and pick up a copy of the book. I know I will. For those of you who work in nonprofits, or maybe you have a loved one who works in a nonprofit, or maybe you're trying to get on one of those boards, be a great read, a great primer for that work. Bethany, thank you so much. Where can people reach you if they want to work with you directly? Yes, you can find me at www.thediversitygap.com. Everything is there. And we have a big workshop coming up this November where we're going to be diving into racial identity and organizational culture and our histories and our stories. I'm really excited about that. So if you're looking, just to want to test things out and be a part of this community as we are trying to change our little corners of the world, we'd love to have you at that workshop. And it's all at thediversitygap.com. Isn't Bethany awesome? What I love about talking to her is, you know, I come from a corporate space and she comes from a not-for-profit space. And while those two things seem very far apart culturally and, um, you know, in terms of the mechanisms and the operation, they're really not that different. Uh, And it's nice to be reminded of that, that sometimes our experiences in professional spaces are transferable and maybe a little more universal than we expect. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe to Living Corporate. Share us with your friends and colleagues. And you can really help us out by leaving us a six-star review wherever you get your podcasts. Maybe you're looking at your app right now thinking, Amy, there are only five stars here. Okay, give us all those stars. But then go the next step by leaving a couple of sentences in your own words, telling us what you liked about the guest or the episode of the series. Don't forget to visit living-corporate.com to learn more about our other podcast videos, web shows, and more. See It to Be It is brought to you in part by Lead at Any Level, a certified woman and LGBTQ-owned business dedicated to helping organizations transform their reclusive nerds into inclusive leaders. Lead at Any Level. Leaders can be anywhere and should be everywhere. Learn more at leadatanylevel.com. That's it for this episode of See It to Be It. This is Amy C. Wanninger, and I'll see you next week. Living Corporate is a podcast by Living Corporate LLC. Our logo was designed by David Dawkins. 
Our theme music was produced by Ken Brown. Additional music production by Antoine Franklin for Musical Elevation. Post-production is handled by Jeremy Jackson. Got a topic suggestion? Email us at livingcorporatepodcast at gmail.com. You can find us online on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and living-corporate.com. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned.